Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the remarkable life of Mary Jane O'Donovan Rossa and how she helped secure the legacy of her Fenian husband on the eve of the 1916 Rising, the mysterious logic of the world's first writing systems, and to end the show, we'll be exploring Newgrange and finding out why and when it was built and whether there might be a mysterious second chamber still to be discovered. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we looked at the life, death and legacy of Theobald Wolftone on this, the 225th anniversary of his death. And we found out how he became the father of modern Irish republicanism. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Mary Jane Irwin O'Donovan Rossa was one of the most active and effective revolutionary women of her time. At a young age, she was thrown into supporting her family when her husband Jeremiah was arrested and put in English prisons and tortured for revolutionary activities. And her great-grandson, Williams Cole, has directed a new documentary, Rebel Wife, telling her story. It's screening at Indie Cork, and I'm delighted to welcome him to the show tonight. Williams, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's much appreciated to be with you. So this is the companion piece for your uh, documentary about your great-grandfather, uh, O'Donovan Rossa, Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa, which you made in 2016. Yep, that was called um, Rebel Rossa. And actually, when I was producing that film, I also had the idea that, you know, I had to do a film about Mary Jane, because Mary Jane's role in Irish history, you know, throughout our family, we always knew about her but there was never any acknowledgement of her really out there. I always thought, you know, Mary Jane's story has to be told as well. She is as important as Rasa in Irish history. So, you know, the idea of this film was born along with the idea of doing Rebel Rasa about Jeremiah Donovan Rasa, who has obviously a much more, more of a profile in history and, you know, the publicity about him is much more uh, well-known. And, uh, you know, it's funny because throughout, when growing up, learning about our great-grandfather and great-grandmother, uh, Mary Jane was, you know, passed down in lore, kind of equivalent to Rasa in many ways, throughout different branches of the family, who are mostly in the United States after um, O'Donnell and Rasa's exile. So, I, you know, I, I have a, had a determination starting way back in 2015 to do a film about Mary Jane as well. Um, ironically, you know, uh, in 2015, there, it was the centenary of O'Donovan Ross's death. So there was a lot of activity, a lot of hullabaloo, a lot of, um, you know, things I could film around that created kind of scenes for my brother and I to kind of be within, such as uh, Sinn Féin recreating his uh, funeral in August 2015 um, and the state commemoration of him and then a recreation in Skibbereen uh, where an actor played O'Donovan Rasa. Lots of headlines, lots of news pieces, etc. Um, and Mary Jane, you know, just partially because of women's history, really, especially in the 19th century. I mean, there's not a lot of exposure and there's not a lot of uh, material there's not a lot of events and so uh, it was more challenging i mean you know all documentaries are challenging to make but um you know i found this particularly challenging because there was nothing really to film and luckily i found some experts like uh judy campbell here in the states who had found mary jane's life to be so interesting that she wrote you know whole uh academic piece on her and did a lot of research. Um, but overall, you know, it's very, it, it just goes to show you, it's sort of ironic in the sense that, you know, you want to make a film about someone in history and it's a woman 
and there's really not a lot there. And it shows you the role, under, underrepresented role of women in history, largely. So tell us about her life. Uh, she married Donovan Rossa in August 1864. They went on to have 13 children. They were married for, I think, 52 years. And she had a yeah. difficult life. Some of the children died young. But she was also hugely, apart from being a mother, and she was also hugely involved in, in, in the struggle, collecting money for the families of imprisoned Fenians. Uh, she was someone viewed with suspicion by the by the British authorities. So uh, it was really a quite uh, extraordinary career. It was, yeah. I think she, you know, from a very early age, um, strove to free Ireland. You know, even before she met Rasa, she wasn't just a wife. Um, you know, as a lot of women in history are p- portrayed that are married to. Um, large figures in history. Um, I think in her own right, she really had a trajectory that was resolute and determined. Um, you know, she she was quite young when she when she met Rasa and they got married, but you know, almost immediately Rasa was um, put in jail in the infamous sort of five years tortured in jail and such, and she um, you know ended up going to this to New York. Um, and you know, trying to raise money in in the in the kind of Fenian uh, you know diaspora, but it was pretty a pretty fractious situation in New York. And you know, as as Irish history always shows, there's a lot of factions. Um, but she did end up learning elocution, and she was quite good at it. Which at that point meant, uh, you know, you go and you'd read the popular poems of the day in a big hall. It was kind of the Netflix of the time, if you, have, if you say, because it, there was really nothing else. And then she would, um, she wrote her own poetry, and a lot of her poetry was very, you know, about liberating Ireland and about the political prisoners and such. And, you know, she started quite a career at that um, for a few years where she traveled to Canada. She traveled as far west as Nebraska. She traveled down to Georgia. She sometimes commanded, uh, you know, a room of thousands, and she was very good at it. And um, it is kind of it's kind of amazing to think back to that time because it was just a few years after the Civil War. So you know, the United States was is a very chaotic situation, and she was traveling around. She had a lot of publicity. A lot of uh, articles were done about her, and um, she was very successful at what she did. And then uh, when O'Donovan Rasa was exiled, he came back to the United States. He came to the United States where she was living off and on. And, you know, she did take a back seat at that point to O'Donovan Rasa, because O'Donovan Rasa obviously had a lot of publicity as well. But, you know, throughout the years after that, throughout all the tumultuous times with O'Donovan Rasa, where he was running the dynamite campaign in the 1880s, he was the face of a lot of controversy and he had a lot of ups and downs at times. You know, he was drinking heavily and he was kind of untrustworthy in some ways. And she would be communicating with people like Devoy, a fe- fellow Fenian who O'Donovan Rasa had fallen out with, you know, saying to Devoy, you know, O'Donovan, you know, Rasa's not well right now. You shouldn't involve him in this and that. And, you know, her resolute progress in the background toward freeing Ireland was there up until O'Donovan Rasa died. You know, she was pivotal in helping plan the famous funeral that Pierce spoke at in August 1915. And Williams, tell us about that funeral, because of course, it's the funeral of O'Donovan Rasa that becomes one of the central moments in the in the in the road to 1916, uh, Pierce is given the 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 responsibility of delivering the funeral oration, uh, make it as hot as hell as or as hot as he can. He's instructed and he delivers that uh, incredible speech about you fools, you fools, the fools, the fools. They've left us our Fenian dead and Ireland unfree shall never be at peace. That. In a way, uh, that becomes a, a, a crucial uh, landmark in the in the road to 1916, and Mary Jane is 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 hugely involved in helping to make that happen. She is indeed, yeah. And uh, you know, she bought the plot um, at at Glasnevin where the speech took place, 
And uh, I, I think she was really somebody that understood public relations or propaganda or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so she and you know, Thomas Clark, of course, and Devoy all conspired to really have that funeral be a symbolic moment uh, where everybody could see, where the world could see, you know, this something has to happen in Ireland. And um, I think she's largely unacknowledged for her role in that. You know, it was a momentous event. Uh, tens of thousands of people and just, you know, even the pictures now you look at them and you're like, wow, that is a lot of people. And that's a big event. And there's a lot of different factions coming together, uh, you know, to really launch it to the next stage. Um, and, you know, after the rising, she was back in the, in the States and, um, you know, she, there's just some very powerful letters where, she writes her daughters about, you know, the people that all the people she had met that were now executed, um, you know, after the first stage of the rising. And she's just despondent. And uh, you know, it's very emotional to kind of try to understand what she was going through. And tell us about her return to America, because, of course, she dies in August 1916. So only a few months after the rising, her final poem is one in memory of Patrick Pierce. And uh, her final thoughts, it seems, were about the events of uh, in, in Dublin and in Ireland uh, of that crucial year. Yes, I think she, you know, in her last few months, you know, she did do, she tried to do as much as she could here. You know, I think she was at different events at Carnegie Hall, which is a big hall in, in New York, and, you know, trying to be involved with the diaspora here. Um, but yes, I think she was, uh, it was something that really affected her to the core. And uh, unfortunately, in just a few months, in August 1916, she passed away, um, you know, relatively alone. I think quite sad, quite affected by the events in Ireland and small recognition, but compared to O'Donovan Rasa, absolutely nothing. And um, she's buried in a, in a small cemetery in the middle of Staten Island, you know, a very modest grave that actually has O'Donovan Rasa's name on it as well. And, uh, you know, when you look at the contrast uh, between how she's remembered and O'Donovan Rasa, it's quite jarring. Try to resurrect her and hopefully inspire other stories of women in history, particularly. And, and why do you think that was? That is it just the way women were written out and airbrushed out of Irish history for so long that uh, we remember Wolf Tone but not Matilda, we remember O'Donovan Rasa but not uh, Mary Jane, that... Uh, these are women who played a crucial role in ensuring that their husbands' legacies were remembered and that uh, their contribution was acknowledged. And yet, uh, they are very much in the sidelines of history. Yeah, well, I think that's one of those big questions that you know everyone should reflect upon. Um, I think partially it is that the the of course how it was recorded at the time that the men were you know, acknowledged a lot more, their actions acknowledged a lot more. And maybe it has to do with the, you know, a certain bias toward the the action of men, you know, which a lot of the times means the, the warfare and such like that. But, um, you know, I think we, everybody has to remember that women's history has always been there, of course. <laughs> and it's different than men, too. I mean, women, you know, their contributions are different. And I think the standards that we get used to obfuscated many times what uh what women have done i mean you know there's a lot of women's history out there uh it's only it's more than half of the human population in history and they weren't just sitting there twiddling their thumbs um so i think you know a lot of times just the lens and the optics have to, have to be changed a bit to see it but it's always been there and it's there. Um, I just think it's, you know, the history books show a biased element of it, um, of history. You know, the classic statement, you know, it's 
written by the victors and the victors have been men or something like that. And finally, uh, how do your family view the legacy of O'Donovan Rossa as well as Mary Jane? You mentioned the dynamite campaign. You know, it's something that, you know, was controversial at its in its time. It's certainly controversial still. And I suppose it's, uh, how do you feel about that part of the legacy? Well, um, it's funny because growing up, I didn't really know about that part. I think there was there was an element of uh, you know in part of the family to kind of try to airbrush it out, like you know in other parts of Irish history around O'Donnell and Rasa. I think it's I think it should be acknowledged. It's part of it's part of what he did at at the point at that point in history. He was you know he was a very resolute um, militant character in many ways, and he thought that force was the only way to make a point. But a lot of it was connected to the, the propaganda and public relations around, um, you know, the, the fear and getting the attention of the British and, and putting the question of Ireland, you know, in, in the newspapers, etc. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't believe in, in, in censoring any part of his life. I think it's, it's, it's his decision. And I think Mary Jane was, you know, tangentially connected to that. I think she kind of was a ballast in that whole time because I think it it was, you know, he was quite volatile at times. But um, I think it's part of the panoply of uh, perspectives and actions that took place to make a change in colonialism, you know, to, to make a change that led to, uh, you know, an Irish Republic, essentially. Um but yeah, I mean, it is controversial, and I think parts of, uh, you know, parts of history, parts of family members, parts of media don't want to approach it. But I think it's uh, it, it, you could learn a lot of lessons about a lot of other parts of the world by by acknowledging it and researching it and looking at it. Sure. Okay. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to Williams Cole, the director of Rebel Wife, about his great grandmother, Mary Jane Irwin O'Donovan Rossa. And that's going to be screened at Indie Cork. Williams, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Much appreciated. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. The mysterious logic of the world's first writing systems was explored by ancient language expert Dr. Martin Worthington, Associate Professor in Middle Eastern Studies at Trinity College Dublin recently. The talk, entitled Pictures to Words, Parsing the Logic of Early Cuneiform, was part of the Trinity Centre for the Book Seminar series. And I'm delighted to welcome Martin to the show tonight. Martin, you're very welcome. Very good evening, likewise, to yourself and your listeners. Hello. Well, can we talk about what cuneiform is? Because it seems to have been developed, well, thousands of years ago and was used for more than 3,000 years up until the first century AD. Absolutely. Cuneiform is the name that we give today to an ancient script or system of writing. And for over half of human history, there were people on Earth who were writing in cuneiform, which is quite something. For example, the alphabet that we use today is a relative newcomer. For a long time, people would have written using other techniques. And, you know, we give in hieroglyphs, one way of doing it, and the Phoenician alphabet. But cuneiform is, as far as we know, likely to be the first script ever invented. So it was born in the south of Iraq. Obviously, it wasn't called Iraq at the time. It's a country we refer to today as Iraq, in an ancient which went on to be known as ancient Sumer. So Sumerian is the first language written with the cuneiform script. And the invention of the script is probably around about 3400 BC. And the people of Iraq used the script and they changed it over time and they refined it. And in some ways it became more complex all the way down uh, into the common era. So around about maybe 100 AD or AD 100, there were people in Iraq who by that time, the whole region had had lots of languages coming through it, Greek and Aramaic. So there were people who were writing tablets with Greek on one side and cuneiform script on the other to write Babylonian, Assyrian and Sumerian languages. So it's a script with a huge story and a huge amount of culture embedded in it. Now, there's a story about the word. You know, cuneiform isn't sort of a very intuitive word. What does it mean? The answer is that over time, modern scholars have referred to this ancient writing system in different ways, but they all refer to how it looks. Because people in ancient Iraq, in ancient Mesopotamia, as we call it, didn't use paper, which hadn't yet been invented. And they also didn't usually use parchment or papyrus because those are very expensive materials. If you think of making parchment, you have to find a sheep and you have to skin it and you have to dry the skin. It takes hours and hours. 
they were much more practical. And this is probably why they had massive empires and huge cigarettes and great literature and all sorts of marvellous things. They simply used clay, because in the south of Iraq, you can scoop up a handful of clay from the ground. So what do you do with this handful of clay? Well, you could sort of write with a toothpick and try and write letters like ours. But obviously, on a clay surface, you can imagine that getting a bit fiddly. You know, the, it wouldn't look very nice and it wouldn't be very easy to do. So they invented a system of writing which was really in unison with the material. So if you imagine taking a sort of chopstick type thing and you plonk the end of your chopstick um, with its triangular or its square-shaped head into the clay surface at an angle, it leaves a tapering triangular impression that looks a bit like a wedge. And so pretty much everybody who's talked about this script in modern times has referred to it like that. So the earliest term was actually arrowhead. People were talking about the arrowhead script. Um, why? Because each individual stroke in it looks a bit like a wedge or an arrow. But then people started getting fancier and they decided that arrowhead was too pedestrian. So they invented the word cuneiform, because in Latin, cuneus is a wedge. So cuneiform means shaped like a wedge. So the next question is, why are you and I saying cuneiform today? And the answer seems to be that Gilbert and Sullivan rhymed the word cuneiform to go with uniform, mispronouncing it as cuneiform. And people like that so much that the pronunciation changed. And so at the removal of 150 years, here you and I are talking about the cuneiform script as cuneiform. So that's what it is. It's an ancient script. It's individual constituent strokes look like wedges or arrows. So that's why we call it the arrowhead script or the cuneiform script. It was invented in Iraq. And of course, it writes a number of different languages. Uh, in fact, it represented a huge variety of languages. There was uh, Sumerian to start with, then Babylonian and Assyrian. The Hittites, who were an empire in ancient Turkey, what we call Anatolia, wrote an Indo-European language related to Latin, Greek and Irish and English and French and the Indo-European family in the cuneiform script. So then as now, script and language are two completely different things. You can use, broadly speaking, any script to write any language. And, you know, just as we today use um, the Roman alphabet to write lots of different languages, so then cuneiform was used to write lots of different languages. That's quite a long-winded answer to your question, but there we are. And it's fascinating the way, as you say, these arrows, the, the way the signs were used to to create kind of images and pictures almost, to, to create an association in the mind of the person reading it. You're raising a very interesting pot, or at least a pot which is of sort of very great interest to me, and I can smell dust of cuneiform emanating from it, so I'll try to verbalise some of these. Um, you're quite right. The way the script originated was as pictures. So if today you look at a cuneiform tablet, and you can very easily do that if you type cuneiform tablet into Google, you'll find tens of thousands of them. And actually, there's about a million cuneiform tablets that we currently know about, which people are studying. So I should say in brackets, people have this idea about history, that the further back you go, the less is known. So in this model, it goes something like this. We know, you know, almost everything about the current day and the Second World War and the Victorians. And you go back and there's the Middle Ages, about which we know quite a lot. And then there's the Greeks and Romans about, you know, we know a bit about their famous people and a few of their battles. And before that, well, the Egyptians have the odd painting. And then there's just this land called prehistory where everything is indistinct and unclear. And Obviously, there is an element of truth to a narrative like that, but there are also huge distortions in it because actually there are enormous amounts of information that we have from pre-modern times. So like a million cuneiform tablets from Mesopotamia and surrounding regions is not a small number of sources. So we've got a lot of these tablets and they started out writing them as pictures. This is going back to 3400 BC. But um, in origin then, it was a bit like hieroglyphs, you know, in theory, if you wanted to write the idea of eating an ice cream, you, let us say, draw a picture of someone eating an ice cream. And that's more or less how Egyptian hieroglyphs works. And that was, with a refinement we'll talk about later, more or less how cuneiform worked. But because they were writing on these clay tablets and everything had to be impressed, very quickly these drawings became stylized and they morphed into what looked like abstract shapes. They don't really look like Chinese, but it's a similar sort of thing that happened in Chinese. A lot of Chinese signs go back to an original picture, but over time the shape has become stylized so that you can't really see the original picture unless you know that it's there. And actually in cuneiform, you can't often see the picture even if you know that it's there. But so one of the things that has interested me about this whole story 
is which words were represented with which signs. So imagine that we're sort of a committee sitting around the table. We've just invented a script. Aren't we clever? You know, now we can write stuff down. So how are we going to write? I don't know, going shopping or how are we going to write photocopy or whatever? And here you have a question of creativity versus efficiency, and you have to balance different considerations. We could, in theory, have a different symbol for everything. We could have a symbol that means to photocopy the first page of a book while holding the book down with your left hand and drinking a cup of tea with the right. But that's a very inefficient way of doing things, because then the user of the script has to learn 20 trillion symbols, and you know that symbol ends up being different from doing the same thing with the left hand or drinking coffee. So obviously what you tend to do is you tend to try and break it down so that each symbol only represents one idea or a small number of ideas. So that's the principle that we can go with for common sense. But then um, there are lots of things which are very hard to draw. Uh, a good example is the verb to mix. I mean, you could imagine a, a hand holding you know, a wooden spoon going around in a pot, but would that be to mix or would it be? Uh, actually, could you tell it from a pestle and mortar? quite hard in a drawing to distinguish, um, especially a drawing without color, someone mixing from someone pounding, right? So what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what they did, or at least this is my interpretation of what they did, which makes sense, although I can't absolutely prove it. There's a cuneiform sign that represents the word for cake. And in Sumeria, the word for cake is gug, quite similar to the English word cake. That's complete coincidence. And once you know what this sign means and you wind all the way back to the original picture, because there are books that help you to do this, you see that the original picture is basically a round circle with a few little lines on it. And you say, I can see what that is. That is a cake or something like a cake seen from above. And actually, it's you know, recognizable as a cake today. So you use that symbol to write cake. OK, but then how do we write the verb to mix? And this is where there's a beautiful link between them and us that comes to life. Because in the mind of people who speak English, you often have a link between the idea of cake and mixture. If we were to play a game of word association, Patrick, and I were to say cake, and you were to say birthday, and I were to say cake again, I suspect it wouldn't take too long before you replied mixture to my saying cake. And it seems to have been similar for ancient Sumerians. So they said, hmm, yes, how shall we represent this verb to mix? Well, mixing and cakes go together because you have to mix cakes when you make them. Why don't we use the picture of the cake to represent the verb to mix? But the great thing about this verb to mix, which is loo in Sumerian, doesn't just mean to mix, it also means to make trouble. And we can think of English, you know, stirring things up. And in German, a rebellion would be an Aufruhr, which means literally a, a stirring up. You know, you can stir up emotions. So you can kind of see how the idea of mixing and stirring and emotional turmoil might go together. So we've got this Sumerian verb that means uh, to mix and to make trouble. So because the picture of the cake represents this verb in its mixing incarnation, it also, by default, represents it when it means to make trouble. And so you have a picture of a cake that means to make trouble. And there are all these nice little forests of associations going on where one meaning carries through and um, you try and work out why they have this meaning. And sometimes, um, well, I should say, sorry, there are quite a lot of signs in the script. Um, there's, in the mature version, maybe 800 of them. And sometimes I'm at a blank wall. You know, why does this sign represent this meaning? And then you find out the answer in some tucked away corner of Sumerian lexicography that means the study of Sumerian words. I'll give you an example. Premise, Sumerians weren't stupid, right? They were extremely clever. They invented a ton of stuff. It's they, as far as we know, who, well, I won't say they invented the wheel, but the wheel is first known to have existed in Sumerians. They probably invented writing. They invented cities. I mean, these were serious people. Uh, they managed to tame a very complex ecosystem, and they had irrigation. They had administration. So, a remarkable people. So, premise, the Sumerians weren't stupid, right? So why is it that the word for fruit is represented with a really tall picture of a pot or a picture of a really tall pot? Now, I can understand, you know, the pot representing pot in general. And sure enough, this picture I'm talking about, if we go back to 3400 BC, that looks like a really tall, thin pot, a bit like the kind of glass that you'd have an ice cream sundae in, you know, the with cream at the top and a straw sticking out. You know what I mean? Tall, thin glass, wider at the top than the bottom. And then if you chop off the base at the bottom, we're looking at this kind of tall pot shape. And that's how you write the word for pot, because that seems to have been the sort of general shape of the pot. Great, makes perfect sense. But why use that to represent the word for fruit? Which is gurun. 
Goron is the smelling word fruit. And so I scratch my head and scratch my head because we all know what a fruit bowl looks like. It looks totally different, right? A fruit bowl is nice and open and you can put your apples in it or your pomegranates until eventually it turns out in a tucked away corner of Sumerian lexicography that this word gurun doesn't just mean fruit, but it also means flower. And then suddenly you think, now I understand why the tall pot represents the word gurun. Because they were thinking of that word meaning flower. And of course, where would you put a flower? Not in something that looks like a fruit bowl. You'd put it in a and flower as in, as in blossom, as in giving somebody a bunch of flowers. You put it in a nice tall um, pot, just like we do today. Um, and so it's joining up all these dots, joining up the picture with the meanings the word had. And some of them are rare and they fall out of use. So you have to go and dig them up and find someone who wrote about them and trying to tell the story. And then gaps become significant as well. So the most important one for me is the one I alluded to earlier when I said that, and obviously I was slightly tongue-in-cheek, when I said that in hieroglyphs, if you want to say eating an ice cream, you draw a picture of someone eating an ice cream, and that with a refinement, ancient Mesopotamians did more or less the same at the start with their pictures. The refinement is this, that if you go and look at a list of hieroglyphs, and you'll find one at the end of Alan Gardiner's grammar, that's kind of the standard one, which has been reprinted in lots of different books, it's divided into sections by the thing represented. So there's a section on basketry, there's a section on the sky and the elements, and there's a section on weapons or whatever you like, and there are pictures of all these things. But Gardiner divided his list by some sort of ranking, where he put what he thought was more important things first. And this was produced a long time ago, and so he had man followed by woman, which is a very, that's a way of doing things I'm not sure I subscribe to at all. But that's how he did it. But you had human pictures, male and female, doing activities, e.g. tongue-in-cheek, eating ice cream. So what's interesting about that from the viewpoint of cuneiform? We have all these symbols, and not once do we have a full picture of a person. We do, so the sign for person, the Sumerian word lu, it sort of looks a bit like a kind of half person with something weird happening at the bottom of their trunk. So there are no legs and the end, it's weird tapering shape and there's some lines and there are different theories about why this might be. Some people think that um, it's actually a baby being swaddled and some people think you know, it wasn't necessary to write the full picture. But isn't it interesting that whereas the Egyptians invented this system that, you know, how do I say to photocopy? Well, draw a picture of someone photocopying. Mesopotamians didn't do that. And what's even more interesting is that if you go and contrast this with what we know of the artwork, around about 3,400 or 3,000 BC, they weren't shy about depicting people in art. So the art I'm referring to is on so-called cylinder seals. And these are one of the most charming relics of Mesopotamian civilization. We're talking about things that sometimes, you know, they're roughly as big as your finger. If you stick out a finger, so they're a cylinder, which is why they're called cylinder seals, made of stone, which is not a native material in Mesopotamia. So we're talking about high status items that you import from abroad, and it looks posh when you carry it. You dangle it around your neck on a string. So it's this cylindrical piece of stone which has been carved in such a way that if you roll it on a piece of plasticine, it will produce an image that goes on forever. So very, very clever, meticulous, accurate carving. You know, if I'd sat down and tried to do that, I wouldn't produce a picture that went on smoothly forever. I'd produce something that looked jagged and disconnected. But anyhow, they were very good at that, so that's what they did. And we've got cylinder seals from pretty much all of Mesopotamian history, and we have some from the earliest periods when writing was invented. And on those, we have plenty of people, or people-like beings. So somehow, in this creative moment that took place, this remarkable transformative moment that went on to change the course of human civilization forever, we had a divide between one mode, which is figurative art, when you can have all the people you like, and symbols used in writing when they created this limitation that you don't use human pictures. And I have no idea why, but it's a puzzle which I'd very much like to think about. And I wonder, it seems from talking to you in your passion and enthusiasm that really this is just the tip of the iceberg, that there's so much more that we have yet to discover about this, about this type of, of writing and script. You know, research means different things to different people, and there are different justifications for different types of research. I mean, nobody needs a justification of researching cancer and they need obscure forms of cancer. That's kind of obvious. It's sometimes less obvious to governments, to funding agencies, to ordinary individuals, and to people picking their subject at university, why some of the lesser-known corners of the humanities are worthy of research. And 
It's exactly as you said. It is a huge intellectual journey. You meet amazing people, people who've decided not to be merchant bankers, but instead to devote their lives to going and figuring out this difficult stuff with these little bursts of enthusiasm that come when you finally understand something and trying to exercise human intelligence and to develop in our students the same inquiry into primary sources, the same close reading of written documents, the same analytical intelligence, which is ultimately going to protect the human race from the people who want to take it over and terrorize it and dominate it and replace it with AI or simply to be dictatorial. So it's a fascinating journey. It's about the search for origins. It's about explaining crucial moments in human history. It's about enjoyment. It's about fulfillment because you learn stuff and then you use it and you learn more and you learn it again. And the language and the script interact. And also, this is an area where so many things are unknown. You know, there are entire empires that still have properly to come to light through the study of the written sources. So there are titans, men and women out there who read thousands of these clay tablets, often in very difficult conditions because they're fragmentary. And this is something I don't do. I'm no epigrapher, meaning I don't go and stare at the clay and try and decide is the sign a lat or a bat. I come in later when people have already done that. So there are these people out there, absolute frontier research, deciding whether the sign is lat or bat are working out what it means, and then there are people like me who come along and say, well, in that case, we can do this with it and that with it. And then people who come along with my results and say, well, in that case, we can do this and that. And you have this ecosystem of people all working together, usually in harmony, towards the common goal of trying to understand the human past. And it's a magnificent enterprise. And if there's anybody who thinks, well, I might be bored just studying subject X, then they should jolly well come and do cuneiform studies, sometimes called the seriology, and I can guarantee that they won't be bored. Well, Martin, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you tonight, Dr. Martin Worthington of Trinity College Dublin. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. We'll be back with more Talking History right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. When Newgrange was dated at over 5,200 years old, older than the Egyptian pyramids and Stonehenge, the map of the ancient world was turned upside down. But incredibly, Newgrange was never fully excavated. The vast majority of this ancient structure remains untouched and its secrets intact. Yet in the decades since, rumours persisted of a second as yet undiscovered chamber. In a new documentary, Rune Naboina, Secrets of the Boyne, award-winning journalist and folklorist Sean Makantihi seeks clues to this mystery scattered across time and across the Irish landscape. He revisits the remarkable finds of the 1960s excavations in the Boyne Valley to tell a new story carved into our most well-known yet mysterious monument. And in an Irish TV first, the filmmaker behind this documentary, Neil Boyle, has brought leading scientists from Ireland and across Europe, as well as cutting-edge technology, to join Sean's quest to locate the second chamber. The programme will be broadcast this Wednesday on TG Cahar. That's December the 20th at 9.30pm. The programme, as I say, is called Rune Naboina and I'm delighted to join the filmmaker Neil Boyle tonight to discuss Newgrange. Neil, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. So you're the producer-director of this new documentary. Yeah, um, it can be hard to do something about ancient history when so much of it is kind of known. So it's a hard sell to a broadcaster to say, let's do something on, you know, say Newgrange. And they say, was there anything new? Um well, when something new does come along, it's typically an archaeological dig happens and something surprising shows up. It's usually after the fact. It ends up on the news if it's a big thing. So um, that's, you know, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation there where you can't always be guaranteed that you're you know, going to be able to get an audience um, together for something like that. So, you know, I'm fascinated by this period in Irish history. I have been since I was in college. And one thing that has always kind of bothered me about it is that, you know, we don't know the answer to if, if Newgrange has a second chamber or not. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, for 30 years, of, literally for 30 years, I've been waiting for an answer to that question and expecting that some year, some I would hear that there's a dig being done and think, oh, great, they're going to answer this question. And of course, it never happened. And it's as the time went on, I thought that's 30 years I've been kind of waiting to hear this uh, news and it's it hasn't happened. And then it just struck me there in 2019. I just said, you know, I wonder if there's another way to answer this question um, now. I'm a documentary maker, not an archaeologist, a historian or a geophysicist or anything like that. But um, I did think, OK, maybe I should have a crack at trying to solve this mystery myself. So a 5,000 year old mystery 
looking for an answer. So that's where I come in. I'm the producer of the Second Chamber project and Ruin the Bunny, the documentary, is the documentary that follows that. So as you say, it is a 5,000-year-old mystery. So maybe let's just remind our listeners about what we know about Newgrange, when it was built, why it was built, and how much we know about Newgrange. Well, I suppose it's a good question. Newgrange is built 3,200 BC, which makes it, and okay, there's a plus minus of 100 years there either side. Um it makes it 5,200 years old in that region. Um, but it is the end of a long tradition of chambered passage building. Um, so Newgrange comes at the end of that period. And after that, the builders sort of like they stop building those monumental type um, structures and instead move into hinges and uh, stone circles, uh, wood hinges and things like that. Um, so Newgrange um, in that sense belongs to a tradition which stretches much further back. And in fact, if you think about it, it's 3,200 BC for Newgrange, Loch Crew and over to Carmore and Carrickeel and Sligo and Knock Row down in South Kilkenny. Um, they also follow that trajectory backwards. So by the time you get over to Sligo, you're about six, 700 years earlier with those monuments, Carrickeel and Carmore, and Carmore being the oldest. So Newgrange is the pinnacle of that passage building tradition. Um, it's also got the famous alignment in it. And Neil, it's always at this time of the year as we approach the winter solstice that there's always huge interest in it and there's always huge attention given. Can you tell us about, about that? What actually happens and whether we, whether we think this was some kind of scientific experiment or it was some kind of, it had religious significance? Was it a burial chamber? What exactly happens? Well, that's another interesting question. And I suppose we're looking back 5,000 years and more. So... In some sense, you look at the facts that are in front of you. Um, what happens in Newgrange? Newgrange is aligned to the winter solstice rising sun. So on that day, which this year is actually the 22nd technically, but um, they celebrate as the 21st, the sun shines down the passage through a, 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 an aperture or a roof box above the entrance and penetrates the chamber and it lights up the chamber. It extends as furthest that it does at any point in, in, in that time of the year when the sun rises in the right position. It lasts for 17 minutes in the chamber and then fades away. So, you know, that has been proven to be completely accurate um, to the day. So it's extremely intentional. Newgrange is definitely designed to allow the sun in on that date to pinpoint that day. It, would, it had huge significance for the builders. You're talking about a mound that is 200,000 tonnes of material, 87 metres in diameter. You don't construct something that particular and, and a feature like that into it without intention. And what's interesting about that is entrance, the curbstone entrance one with the beautiful spirals and vertical lines and triangle uh, on it and things like that, that stone lines up with the passage. In the great stone circle that surrounds Newgrange, the first stone in that lines up as well. So the shadow from the first stone hits the entrance stone as well as penetrating. So there's a whole lot going on there. Now, we do call Newgrange a tomb. Um, and the fact of the matter is that remains of the dead were found in most of these monuments they are. Um, the tradition starts from you know, dolmens and court tombs and things like that, which are definitely tombs. But at some stage, new ideas come in. And this is the Neolithic. It's a hugely important period when we transition from hunter-gatherers into farmers, people that like stayed together and started to build up community and had, had more time and more manpower to follow intellectual pursuits. So at some stage, other complex ideas, uh, call it an early science if you like, works its way into these monuments. And Newgrange is is the best example in Ireland, the only absolutely to-the-day accurate alignment. So is it a tomb? Is it astronomical? Is it cylindrical? It's all those things. Um, should it be called a tomb then because of that? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, the name doesn't serve the purpose. It used to be described as a passage grave. That name was changed because they felt it wasn't, you know, it didn't take in the wider functions that the Grey Carns, Newgrange, now stout that they would have, um, you know, served. And they were open. Newgrange was open for 300 years. Like, it wasn't built, one person put in there and closed up. So it was a multifunctional building. And if you think about modern cathedrals and things like that, Christchurch has a number of um, burials in it, but it's a cathedral. Graveyard is not what it is. It is a multifunctional building. Now, it happens to be religious, and we have that distinction these days. Back then, it wasn't. So Newgrange and the Boyne Valley Complex 
A burial complex are something much more significant, and I think something much more significant. I think there was intellectual pursuits, um, and they were definitely studying the movement of the sun, possibly the moon, and maybe the stars. A lot of speculation about it. So you, <laughs> you know, but factually, the midwinter solstice, the sun shines down the passage. That's confirmed. In now, both of those passageways, news, Newgrange's sister monument. At the equinoxes, the sun shines in, not with the accuracy that Newgrange, it does in Newgrange, but it does on east and west. And that east is blocked up by trees and things like that. And there's a, you know, the passages um, had a lot of intervention over the years, so the sun wouldn't be able to shine in there, but the west definitely does. Um, and in now south, the sun shines in as well um, at sunset on uh, winter solstice, I think. Um, the fact of the matter is that, you know, the movement of the sun um, through the year, through various points of the year, which would have been significant to a farming, you know, uh, community, and um, for whatever reasons, um, are encoded into these mounds. So, what is Newgrange? It's all these things. And is it true that it was lost to history for many years and kind of accidentally discovered or rediscovered at the end of the 17th century? Yeah, it, there was a new landowner um, in the late 1600s, Charles Campbell. He, you know, um, took over um, that land, gifted to him part of that, that whole thing in our history, which you all know about. But um, Newgrange would have just appeared like a big um, pile of stone. Douth as well um, would have too, and so would Nouth. They would have, because they, they've collapsed out over the curbstones, the entrance are closed in. There's no sign of, you know, it being a man-made structure. They would look like just big hills. But um, they're made of gravel and stone, very handy material to have a big pile of it just lashed there on your land. So what you do, you go say, right, I'm building some roads and doing some walls. I'm going to start digging here and take this material. And the entrance was uncovered. So you come across this highly carved and decorated entrance stone, which is Curbstone 1. And Charles Campbell obviously just turned around and said, you know, well, there's something strange here. It was a cave. It's described as a cave. And antiquarians um, were on the site pretty quickly. And the earliest um, records we have of that is Edward Lloyd, um, who's a Welsh antiquarian. He went up there in 1699. That's when it was discovered, 1699 December. And he was there within... I think a couple of weeks, um, and he wrote a few letters and described what he saw. Um, and that trail of kind of like people visiting some key antiquarians, Charles Valencia in the in the mid seventeen hundreds, Thomas Moylieu also visits, and their notes are really important about those early stages. What was in Newgrange, but that's when it's rediscovered. So it is unknown until then. What's really interesting though is that we have this idea that. Um, Newgrange has an alignment. It seems to be known in the 60s when Michael J. O'Kelly's doing the excavation and in the area. But if Newgrange wasn't known in the area, how would talk of an alignment be known? Well, Roderick O'Flaherty in 1708, shortly after it's discovered, he realises that Newgrange is actually Brunabonia in Irish folklore and re-identifies or relinks it back to the ancient gods, Angus, Elkmar and Dagda. So, you know, Right when it's discovered, a whole lot of new um, connections are made back to Newgrange. It's lost and then it's discovered and then it's realised that it's actually in Irish mythology as well. And you mentioned Michael J. O'Kelly there. Uh, he deserves huge credit for uh, the extraordinary work he did and all, you know, one of our, I suppose, distinguished archaeologists in the way he really brought Newgrange to our public attention and uh, confirming the alignment in that uh, the winter solstice, the light came through. And then some wonderful scholars like Geraldine Stout and Marisha Sullivan. And, you know, there's been so many people who've been working on Newgrange over the years to make sure that we know as much as we possibly can about it. They were students at the time and they were working in the Boyne Valley. So they caught the golden age of Irish archaeology, if you like, and their careers, they have been, you know, from that period on. And, you know, I just think the contribution they make in preserving the heritage that we've inherited from the builders of the New Range, these guys, you know, have had a chance to really kind of like increase our understanding and appreciation of what's been left for us as custodians of these monuments. And why do you think it, that was the golden age and the and the process of, of excavation didn't continue up to the present? Was it because people wanted to respect the monument and maybe not damage it? Was preservation at the top of their priorities or did they feel that they'd maybe discovered all that was possible to discover? Well, I mean, it's a good question. And, you know, um, O'Kelly 
said that he wouldn't excavate any more of new ground. Um, he said he would leave it for later generations and better technology, which I think was a very noble thing to do. And of course, you now have been bringing in some of this new technology, including, is it a microgravity machine? I think that was used once uh, in the chamber uh, in 2011. But uh, what, what do we mean when we're using microgravity? Well, yeah, I looked around to see what was possible in terms of answering that question, is there a second chamber? And I, I, I thought non-invasive is the only way I could do this because with remote sensing, there's a chance that you can actually do something that doesn't cost the earth, like an excavation, doesn't take years. You can do something and have an answer relatively quickly. Now, what's microgravity? It's one of the technologies we use. The other principal one was geo, geo radar. Um, so microgravity surveys the strength of gravity. Um, it's good at identifying cavities because if you have a cavity that's large enough, then you get a negative in, in gravity. Now, it's micro. The gravity machine has a crystal spring inside it. It's so sensitive that when you're measuring new grains, you have to know if the tide is in or out at the coast, 16 kilometers away, and you have to take that weight out of the data. That's how delicate and sensitive these machines are. They have to drive it across Europe. We brought one from the UK as well. Um, but um, so gravity surveys the strength of gravity um, in an area um, just basically measures it over the whole thing. It's a very complex process. And the end product can be viewed now in TG Carr this Wednesday at 9.30pm. Now, I don't think you're able, to, you're allowed to reveal to us whether you have discovered a second chamber or not. People will have to tune in on Wednesday to find out the answer to that. But it is something that has been long suspected. And if a second chamber is discovered, how will that transform how we understand and comprehend Newgrange? I think the Boyne Valley is going to keep revealing um, more to us. Um, so much of Newgrange is unexplored. Um, that um, I think we have a lot more to find there and learn about. And, you know, there are other mounds in, in the valley that also have never been opened or touched. Uh, so I think, you know, as we go on, we're going to continue to see, find new things and learn more about these. And it's going to reshape our understanding and appreciation of what the achievements of these people were. And I think that's really important. Well, my thanks to Neil Boyle, the producer director of Rune Naboina, Secret of the Boyne. It's going to be broadcast this Wednesday at 9.30pm on TG Cahar. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing what they uncover. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sand. Next week it's Christmas Eve and we're bringing you a special edition of the show as we explore the White House Christmas traditions over the centuries. That's next Sunday on Talking History. Good night.